everyone. Great to see you and have you here with us. I want to quickly introduce myself as well as our amazing and esteemed guests that are here with us today. I am Renee Williams-Niles, and I'm the Chief Content and Engagement Officer for the Los Angeles Philharmonic. So really wonderful to have you here for what is, I don't use the word special lightly. I would say inspiring, powerful, memorable. I've already been brought to tears just in rehearsal alone from the artistry as well as all that the artists will be giving us this evening. And of course, the concert tonight is part of our Rock My Soul Festival, and that is celebrating collaborations between black women artists. The festival was curated by the extraordinary soprano, Julia Bullock, and she unfortunately is not able to be with us, I think for the best reason possible, which is that she just gave birth to her child. Oh, she did? Oh, that's yes. awesome. <laughs> that happened, yes. I think only still a matter of days ago. So we certainly will send her good wishes. But I want to share with you Julia's words in terms of the festival's mission. Rock My Soul offers a diverse range of music with messages about historical recognition, liberation, fierce self-empowerment, and highlights artists who speak to our need for accountability as a human collective. The festival focuses on the connection, collaboration, and mutual support shared between artists and celebrates voices who incorporate a vast scope of influences and inspirations in their work. And so with us this evening, I certainly can't think of two artists who embody the spirit of this festival any more than our guests this evening, which include conductor Jerry Lynn Johnson and composer Courtney Bryant. And I want to tell you a little bit about both of our guests, and I will be keeping track of time as Jerry Lynn needs to have time to prepare. So just in case you have to do a swift exit, I'm going to tell you a little bit about both. And then uh, asking questions, and we're going to delve into this program, the inspiration again around the festival as well. Jerry Lynn is acclaimed composer, performing with orchestras all over the world, and she's also a true entrepreneur and innovator, having founded the revolutionary Black Pearl Chamber Orchestra, as well as DEI Arts Consulting. She does everything. Courtney is a pianist and composer whose work has been heralded throughout the country, earning such recognitions as the Herb Albert Award in the Arts, the Samuel Barber Rome Prize in Music Composition, and a United States Artist Fellowship. So thank you again, both of you, for being here with us. So Jerry Lynn, I'm wondering if I could ask you to talk to us a little bit about tonight's program, particularly given the fact that uh, this program in particular marries the past and the present, both with Price's Third Symphony, as well as, of course, the works of contemporary composers, Courtney, as well as Valerie Coleman. So if you can talk about, uh, kind of walk us through the program, the narrative, the themes that we will see throughout. 
Certainly. Well, we're going to actually start kind of in reverse chronological order. So we're actually going to end the program with Florence Price's Third Symphony, which was written in 1938. And we're going to begin the, the concert with the, the living composers uh, that we're blessed to have among us today. The first piece is by Valerie Coleman. She is a member of the Imani Winds, Imani Wind Quintet. They're a very, very famous African-American wind quintet. They perform all over the world. They're currently in residence at the Curtis Institute. And the bassoonist of that quintet, Monica Ellis, will be performing the piece written by Valerie Coleman as part of a, a series of pieces collected under the title of Phenomenal Women. And so the Phenomenal Woman's piece that we're going to hear tonight is dedicated to Serena Williams. So we're going to hear Serena tonight, and I think you'll hear in the piece some very recognizable tennis sorts of sounds, like a ball being knocked back and forth. I can kind of imagine two players on the court volleying back and forth, or rallying, if you will. And so I think it's a very striking piece. And you, and what's wonderful about it is you don't often hear a lot of bassoon solo pieces. You know, there's a lot of violin concerti, piano concerti, but now we essentially get to hear a nice short bassoon concerto. So that's really nice. We're going to follow that up with Courtney's piece called Sanctum. And I'll, I'll let Courtney talk more about her own piece. But it's what I love about this is that it, it integrates audio recordings of people speaking about their experiences. Or And I'll, again, I'll let her talk about the source of the material. But what's really interesting is incorporated into the orchestra is some recorded sound. And so that will be a unique experience. And we're going to follow that up by the LA Phil has invited a really wonderful singer based in Rochester, New York, who's really kind of exploding in, in the in the. Kind kind of R&B soul scene, if you will, kind of the like neo-soul. I don't know if that would be the right genre category. She's all of it. Yes. Yes, all of those things. Danielle Ponder, who's just an incredibly interesting musician. She's a former public defender. Yes, really, lawyers can be musicians. And what's wonderful is, you know, she just felt, she's always loved music, and she just really felt the calling and and kind of stepped out on faith to start her music career. So she's got a number of videos and recordings, and you can find her on YouTube. She's really wonderful. But she's gonna, we're going to be doing a couple of orchestrated versions of her songs, and she's going to sing something just alone by herself. And then intermission, and then we'll have the, the Florence Price. Thank you. And in case you're curious why I cried, it was Danielle who brought me to tears. And we had her on the Hollywood Bowl stage as part of our uh, Juneteenth, which was our huge CNN broadcast as well. So it's really wonderful to have her here inside Disney Hall. And so you were talking about concluding this evening with Price's Third Symphony, which also within that work marries past and present, including you know, some older African-American influences, but also at, at least at that time when it was being created, some very modern aspects or sounds. And, and I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about, a little bit more about the piece sure. um, and what the audience should be listening out for. Sure, you know, Florence Price to me was a composer, um, of immense talent and regrettably very little direction and guidance professionally. As an African-American woman, this is something she often lamented, and, and, and she wrote about this to, to a conductor who was trying to champion her work, and she said, you know, as an African-American woman, you can imagine how difficult it must be for me to even get my pieces performed. And so I, I find her work to be incredibly fascinating and compelling for a lot of reasons. One is you, you can hear the genius 
in what she's doing in, in her own unique compositional voice. But again, as a composer and a conductor myself, unfortunately, like Mahler, I'm looking at the structure, I'm looking at the phrasing, I'm, I'm looking at it from a technical standpoint, and I can see the mistakes, and I can see that there are these kinds of things. Now, that doesn't mean that other composers didn't also have these things. We know that Brahms very famously threw all of his sketches in the fire so that no one would ever see his compositional process at work. Florence Price never did that. And so I feel like a, a lot of times with her works, and I've done a, a number of her concerti and in and, and, and the symphony, you're gonna hear in, in a lot of her orchestral works, you're gonna hear her working things out. You're gonna hear her, it, it will sound like she's doing variations on a lot of her themes and motives within a certain movement. But again, when I look at it from a compositional and conductor's eye, I see like she hasn't decided on what the final form of some of these are. And so these are, it's almost like these are sketches in the work itself. And she also struggles with self-editing. She'll throw a great idea in there that doesn't have anything to do with the form great ideas she's been working on and it feels a little disjointed and so it's it's it, it's something that a composition teacher would have called her to task for and say look let's let's think about how these things thread together and so it, it's something that I always struggle with with her works you know conductors often you know we don't talk about it a lot but we often do a little bit of editing with composers you know Schumann symphonies are famously very poorly orchestrated for brass sometimes and conductors have often reorchestrated a bit to make it sound a little bit better and you know a couple other things and so we tinker with some things and so you know and and the orchestra and I really we, we talked about this as artists like well should we be doing this and yes this is what she wrote but did she really mean this and you know maybe we should and so we've really gone back and forth about what we know this should probably be versus what is literally on the page and and so we we've come to rest at we need to honor what we're hearing and what we're seeing and what she's offering right here and right now because that is a picture of the artist as a person. And it tells the story of the discrimination and the oppression and the lack of opportunity that she was struggling against. And that in a lot of ways she was able to overcome just by doing what she was doing and having her pieces performed when and where she could, even though it wasn't nearly as much as she would have wanted and we would have liked. And so we honor her as an artist in that way. But what she brings through her compositional voice, you're going to hear a lot of references. It'll sound a lot like Dvorak, if you will. Um, and I think that's partly because of her ability to take ethnic themes like Dvorak did and his Slavic sorts of things. She's doing the same thing with African-American Negro spirituals and melodies and, and popular tunes. I, I had a fun moment with the, I don't know if you were in the rehearsal for that. I was talking to the orchestra. The third movement is called Juba, which is a, a kind of dance that was done. And so before we started the Juba movement, I asked the orchestra, how many of you are familiar with Hambone? And most people just was like, what is she talking about? And the concertmaster was like, right, exactly, this lady in the front is doing it. And it's a whole, how does she- She in the orchestra. It's great, it's a Greece. It, what? It, it, oh, oh. Okay, yes, so there, right, there is a version of that, but the old, old school version is very, it's a physical, it, it's a form of using your body to be percussion. I see someone in the back trying to, yeah, I see you, yeah. And so the funny thing is, so that the concert master, I said, well, how did you know about him? He says, well, I'm from Kentucky. And so they, <laughs> he knew people who knew how to do handbone. And, and so there's kind of a straight line between juba, handbone, and, and like tap dancing and all these kinds of things. And so 
I think previously you'll hear recordings of, of other orchestras doing Florence Price, and the Juba movement is always way too slow. And so you have to, again, understand the traditions that she's referencing in order to really be able to interpret it, I think, properly. But again, you'll hear a lot of folk references in that. And there's also, I think, kind of old Hollywood kind of music, if, if you remember the era or think about the era when people were performing orchestras live on the radio, and there was a lot of pieces being written. And so I think of like Fair Grofet, like a lot of that very kind of, you know, the, the music has a lot of sheen and polish and a lot of the gestures that she makes is, is kind of, it for me, is like old Hollywood film scores a little bit. Love that. I really appreciate that. And I think this just hearing from you and learning a little bit about the process really speaks to why we bring guest conductors because there has to be that constant learning and growing and discovery uh, for all of us and certainly for all of our musicians. So to bring your artistry and your expertise and your leadership. So thank you for teaching the L.A. Phil Hambone. Hambone. Yes. So thank you for that. And, uh, and for also letting us more inside of the work and your process with that work. I want to now talk a little bit about the anchor piece of tonight's program, Being Sanctum, Courtney's work, and which is absolutely compelling and emotional and resilient. I just, I've felt different ways every time I've listened. And Courtney, you composed this work in 2015 when you were working postdoctorate at Princeton, and I'm wondering if you can talk about the journey, creation of that work, and is this not you know, an extraordinary opportunity to be able to hear from the composer, so thank you. Thank you. I love how as a composer you're always growing too, and it is true that every time you get to work with a conductor, work with a different group of musicians, you, you keep learning more about like process and different ways to do things. So it's a steady learning process, which keeps it very interesting. But yeah, so 2015, I was at Princeton. Um, I was, um, I had always been in music programs, and this time I was in the African American Studies Department at at Princeton, the one that um, Eddie Glau is is um, chair of, and it was an interesting experience because I was around. My music has often been inspired by either historical events or I'm, I'm, I'm always taking in like the world around me and, and, and the inspiration comes from that. But being around so many people who were experts in the different historical side and all the talks I was going to, it's the first time that I made a piece that was about, like this piece is about police brutality. And it didn't start that way. It started with, it was my first commission, period. And that was from uh, American Composers Orchestra. So I had done a workshop with them, one of their educational programs, Learning to Write for Orchestra. And out of that came a commission. And the main thing I had was that I could use electronics in some sort of way and the general length of the piece. And so everything else was up to me. I started off making a piece that was inspired by different holiness preaching traditions. And I was listening to all kinds of sermons, and I was, and in particular, I was listening a lot to Pastor Shirley Caesar, and to Reverend um, C. L. Franklin, father of Aretha Franklin, and listening really to the cadence. I was really listening to the cadence in their voice the most. But what happens is the words themselves, of course, were were speaking to me, and as they were speaking to me, like the the, the one of the sermons from Shirley Caesar is called the Praying Slave Lady. And it was about this enslaved woman who was um, dealing with all kind of brutality, as, as you can imagine. 
and she had these spirits that intervene. And that's the way I read the sermon. I mean, but it was like this, this whole thing with the spirits intervening, and it quoted a hymn by Charles uh, Albert Tenley. And um, so that sermon moved me a lot, especially as I was taking in a lot of what was going on around with police brutality and not only black victims of police brutality in particular, but how much there was a lack of justice in these cases. There's a lot that's meaningful about this program. That's why I'm so excited to get to be here to, to witness it. It's the first of a lot of things, but just the idea of um, being on a program with Florence Price and Valerie Coleman, and I just and just and get to know Daniel Ponder, and so excited to work with Jerry Lynn Johnson because um, when you reached out, I'm like, oh, this is so exciting. I'm like, I'm excited to meet you, but then we're also talking about the music, <laughs> and I just love like you know all that you've been doing, and like uh, so anyway, it's exciting. Like this group of folks. I'm sorry, a group of folks, this event that Julia Bullock helped to imagine. But also Marlene Pennock is the is the voice that you'll hear in the piece, or one of the voices you'll hear. And that actually that was what kind of sparked this piece going from a piece about sermons to really addressing this police brutality issue. And it happened right here in Los Angeles. So it's a black woman that was a bystander filmed um her being beaten on the highway by LAPD officer. And then because it was filmed, it, it was all around social media. And she is someone who lived to talk about her experience. And so what you hear is a public interview she was giving on the news about what it felt like to see this video of what happened to her the first time. I mean, her see that video for the first time. So that's one voice you'll hear. But as I was focusing on Marlene Pinnock, I, um, then Mike Brown was killed in Ferguson, and, and then it was a matter of, you know, listening to, I was collecting different protests online, but also when I was in Oakland, being at a protest and hearing, you know, some of the chants and stuff. So this whole, like, it was just a lot at that time that all kind of went into this one piece. So that's the inspiration, but also there's a lot of musical footnotes in it. So you may hear things, like there's footnotes that are references to John Coltrane's A Love Supreme. Um, there's references to Max Roach and Abby Lincoln's uh, We Insist Freedom Now Suite. I'm very inspired by his drumming, as well as the drumming of Elvin Jones. There's the quotation of the Charles Albert Tinley hymn in the middle that you'll hear orchestrated. So there's a lot of like those references for different conceptual reasons, but that's the overall of the piece. Right, thank you. Um, and thank you for, for sharing that with us as well. And Courtney, one of the other questions I have is, you know, we talked a little bit about Price and even in the Third Symphony and kind of this duality of past and present, and as well as being influenced by what is happening around them at that time. So I'm wondering if you see your work as part of the lineage of Price. Well, I definitely, in anything I do, I see the doors that people have opened. And so when I, when I think of Florence Price and when I think of Margaret Bonds, I think of early examples of who has made, you know, who have made certain opportunities possible. And then even more recently, like, you know, like Tanya Leon, just composers I've learned about along the way. Sometimes when you're coming up, you, you feel kind of lonely, like you don't necessarily know about this whole history. Mm. I had a teacher in New Orleans growing up, Roger Dickerson. 
He's someone who's a major teacher of Terrence Blanchard coming up, and actually all of us who came up from New Orleans work with Roger Dickerson, and he's a black composer who wrote for symphony and chorus and all these in this tradition. But I, I was a senior in high school, and my parents knew about him, so I met with him, and I wanted to learn about orchestration. So I was like, I knew one day I wanted to write for orchestra. So we talked about that, but he was like, I want you to know about this history. Like he told me about William Grant Still and about Florence Price, and he told me about Hale Smith. He told me about a a large list of um, names like from different generations, but just knowing about this whole tradition of black composers of, of, you know, this particular tradition, which is expansive. But yeah, and I've gone through school and I've worked with different black composers like Wendell Logan at Oberlin and my advisor from Columbia is George Lewis. We all kind of shared this. It always felt kind of like a secret, like there's a secret world of black composers. And what's really exciting in the past number of years is it feeling like it's less secret. Less of a secret. Yeah, and I know there's been a lot of scholarship about these composers. And so I know you asked about the lineage, but in general, like I just feel grateful for knowing about Florence Price. And then in more recent years, I've been actually learning her music. So, so like tonight is part of that too, because I'm, I'm more familiar with her first symphony, but this will be uh, my introduction to the third one. Thank you. And I am keeping track of our time as well. And honestly, I could ask you both more and more questions. But one of the things that I did want to touch on, and Courtney, you spoke to the significance of, of being part of Rock My Soul. And one of the things that Julia Bullock, our curator for the festival, talked about was not wanting to be pinned down uh, with respect to her identity as a black woman artist, but also wanting to be, wanting to recognize the importance of claiming that identity. And I'm wondering, um, Jerry, maybe I'll ask you first uh, in terms of timing, how has identity played into your own evolution as an artist? It's an interesting question. And I think, you know, one that I and, and a lot of African-American artists have been grappling with since the death of George Floyd. A lot of us have had conversations about the opportunities that we now have and have been given and have been offered that we were not offered before George Floyd was murdered. And so, you know, I stand here at the LA Phil making my debut with them because I'm an African-American woman. The only reason I haven't been at the LA Phil before is because I'm an African-American woman. I mean, that doesn't change. What changes is the ability to see talent where talent exists in, you know, regardless of race, color, creed, nationality, sexual identity, orientation, all those kinds of things. And so I think that ability to both claim and not be pinned down is something that we all struggle with and, and, and embrace at, at the same time. I have never thought of myself, I don't think of myself on the podium, like I walk on the podium, like I'm a black woman conductor, like I've got, you know, other things on on my mind, there's other things to be dealing with, like, you know, cueing the audio recording in your piece, you know, things like that. But, you know, for me, it, it, it has always been something that I've had to struggle with and answer about because other people have always asked me about it. And so I have to deal with other people's discomfort or curiosity about it. And so that now forces me to put it in the front of my mind because it just, it wasn't there before. I didn't, I didn't think about it. You know, people would ask me, what does it feel like to be a black woman conductor? Well, I, Do you know? I don't know any other way to be a conductor. So I can't, I don't, I can't really answer <laughs> that. 
So, uh, <laughs> you know, I just do what I do because I, I love it um, so very, very much. But identity, I think, does, does play a role. And, and I think from an artistic standpoint, you know, identity matters. You know, Black Pearl Chamber Orchestra, that's um, my orchestra in, in Philadelphia, is a very diverse orchestra. All of my musicians are from Curtis and Juilliard and, and Peabody. You know, we're blessed in the kind of Amtrak, that we call it the, the Northeast Corridor right there, to be able to be very mobile. And, you know, I have access to the best trained musicians in the world, of course, outside of Colburn, which is right here. It's awesome. And a lot of my kids from Curtis, you know, came here to, to Colburn, so they're, they're super awesome. But, you know, when you have access to that level of talent, to not have diversity in your orchestra is a deliberate choice. And so I made the deliberate choice to have a diverse orchestra. And so my orchestra is, you know, Asian American, African American, Latin, Caucasian. I mean, all, we have all the people and, and people from all over the world. I have musicians who came here from Venezuela, from, from Haiti, from France, uh, from Korea, from China, from Japan, from Canada, like literally all over the place. And what unites us is not just our love of music and the quality of their playing, but the belief that music, and this music in particular, is for everyone. And so when I started Black Pearl, it was with that famous quote from Mahler in mind that a symphony must be like the world, it must reflect, it must contain everything. And so for me, an orchestra must be like the world, it must contain everyone. I think by really embodying those ideals, that is what's going to create connections with communities to build the generations of audiences for the future for classical music. Thank you, Jerry. Thank you. <laughs> That's my soapbox for the day I'm done. <laughs> but it's, it's such an inspiration. Like, You're so kind. It's so no, nice. it really is just like, I mean, the idea of if, if something doesn't exist or doesn't exist in the way that it could, that you build it. And that's, that's like... That um, is the entrepreneurial, <laughs> right, spirit. Yes. Well, I mean, that was not because I like starting things. I mean, <laughs> I, I had to. I, I, I was not... People wouldn't hire me to conduct. And so I, I quickly realized that if I wanted to conduct, I was going to have to just build my own group to give myself the opportunities that, that nobody else would. And then hope and faith and attrition just... <laughs> See if I can outlast racism and get a chance well, to conduct an orchestra somewhere. But and, I, and if I can say your hard work and your dedication to your craft, that is why you are now conducting all over the world and why we're honored, certainly, to have you here with us. I'm, I'm honored to be here, it, truly. But thank you. Thank you. I will see you all on the stage a little bit later. <laughs> thank you again. Please join me in saying thank you to Jerry. Yeah. Um, and then we'll wrap it up. And, and Courtney, I want to ask you that same question, right, in, in terms of, um, I think, as Julia has talked about, as, as Jerry has talked about, but just in terms of your continued evolution as an artist and identity. And I think also something that Jerry touched on is identity is layered, complex, intersectional as well, right? Um, but if you can talk a little bit about that uh, and perhaps yeah. all, of, all of your identities <laughs> and how that informs your work. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just so inspired. Like, <laughs> the idea is like, yeah, I, I would say similar thing where um, 
as much as I don't want to get boxed in, like I also, I mean, I've always just been proud to be a black woman, you know, so I'm like, <laughs> there's so many, um, there's so many great black women I've grown up around as far as my mother and my aunts and the people in my community, but also a lot of my um, inspirations are black women as far as musicians. Like, even if it's not, I play, I'm a pianist and composer, but um, different instruments. So just, just listening to Billie Holiday, thinking of all the things that she created. Um, created um, Scott Joplin. I'm thinking about people who build their own things. I'm thinking about Scott Joplin and his opera. He didn't have someone to support. He, he was, of course, well-published through his lifetime, and that's why we know his music so much um, many years later. But, um, but his opera, he couldn't find anybody to back him writing an opera, and he created his own opera company, funded the opera, you know, did everything to make it happen, and now it exists, and, and people continue to recreate it. Um, I, yeah, so I, um, I guess, you know, I guess it does come, like growing up, it does come up like, how do you feel being a woman in this situation? How do you feel being black? And, and I love to answer, like, how, how else? I mean, I'd rather just turn the question around to someone. <laughs> you know, how does it feel to be a white male composer? I don't know. But, um, yeah, I'm only, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I guess identity. But what I love doing, and whenever I have an opportunity, is in curating or in teaching, I love to include voices that are often left out. And so I'm very sensitive to people being left out of history. When I think about the black composers, I'm, you know, that I said used to be like, like a secret. Um, um, and when I think about all these black women who are unsung heroes um, in history, um, but then it makes me more sensitive to a number of different identities. You know, so I'm always thinking like, what are the voices that are being left out and how do you include them back in? So when I'm teaching, I have that in mind. When I get a chance to curate a program, oh, I see somebody in New Orleans family. <laughs> um, when I get a chance to uh, curate something, I'm thinking about that too. I'll, I'll think about gender, race, I'll think about, um, yeah, just whatever the representation is. I, I'm trying to always keep things balanced in a way. Um, and then in my work, I love to highlight the stories of black women or the voices of black women. Um, and women of color in general, so. Well, thank you, and thank you for sharing your work with us this evening. Um, please join me in saying thank you to composer Courtney Bryan. Thank you. Um, thank you all again for being with us here this evening. Um, I'm sure you're going to enjoy. If you start to cry, just look for me um, and let me know. Um, if, uh, if you're crying, right along with me, but the best tears possible. Uh, so thank you again, uh, and have a good evening. <laughs>